Welcome back to the podcast English with Kaya, where I talk in comprehensible English about various interesting topics. You're listening to Kaya, and today we have a guest with us, and her name is Nina. Hi, Nina. Hi, Kaya. Thank you for having me here. Nina and I became friends on Peaceboat when we were both volunteering there as communication coordinators or interpreters three years ago. It's been three years since then. That's quite a long time. And currently, Nina is based in Japan. And today, she will be talking to us about her multicultural background and experience in Japan. So, Nina,、um, please briefly tell us about yourself and your background. Thank you, Kaya. So, my name is Nina, and I am based in Tokyo, Japan. I'm originally from here. But I grew up and lived in the States for 15 years during my childhood and through college. I moved back to Tokyo when I was 23, and it's been seven years here now,、um, working as a writer and、um, as a multicultural communications specialist and starting my own work,、uh, doing that kind of stuff for various clients. And tell us why you. We're born in Japan, but you moved to the US. Yeah, so、um, I was born to a Japanese mother and an American father, and they raised me bilingually and biculturally. So even in Japan, I spoke English with my dad and Japanese with my mom. And when I was eight years old, they wanted to move to America. So we went to Oregon on the West Coast. And I grew up there while going to American schools, but also going to Japanese schools on the weekend. And tell us about your experience of being、um, hafu or multicultural、um, in Japan and what that has taught you. How can hafu be defined within the Japanese context? Right, great question. So, hafu means someone like myself who has one Japanese parent and another parent from another country. Or another ethnicity. And、um, when I was in Japan as a little girl, I was very much surrounded by a lot of other hafus going to international school, but did feel a difference when I was around、uh, Japanese communities. Now, when I moved to the States, I didn't feel very different. Everybody is very multiracial and quite multicultural、um, in an immigrant nation. So, I never felt different growing up, but it was when I moved back to Japan as an adult that I, for me, I was coming back to Japan to my motherland, you know. So, for me, it was just going back home and going somewhere where I speak the language, where I am from, where I felt like I was Japanese, but I realized that everyone around me treated me、uh, like they would a foreigner. So, I felt very different and very confused by that identity crisis. I didn't know if I fit into the Japanese mold and the Japanese identity that I thought I had. And at the same time, I had a lot of Western ways of thinking because of my upbringing. So, that really taught me this idea about what does it mean to be Japanese or what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be? A person from a specific place, or how we adapt ourselves to be in the environment we're at. 
and it has really taught me to be resilient. It has really taught me to speak up and vocalize, especially for diversity and inclusion in a place like Japan where um, things are very much still black and white in terms of identity and culture. You mentioned that Japan is very black and white in terms of identity and culture. What do you mean by that specifically? I think that most often Japan is thought of as a homogenous nation. It is something like 98% ethnically Japanese. So there's very little wiggle room for people who are mixed like myself and people who have different ethnic backgrounds that live in Japan. Um, it's also a nation that really, I, I think the best way to put it is the saying, uh, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Um, in a sense that it is a nation where everyone wants to be the similar and same with each other. So anyone that looks different, anyone that acts different tends to be an outcast of society. And as a mixed race Japanese person, that's how I would feel, especially having not just my looks, but also my multicultural thoughts that I have and how vocal I can be sometimes. You mentioned that you were raised in a more kind of Western environment with Western values. What do you mean by that when you say Western values? How would you define these values that you have? Yeah, I think a big Western value would be individuality. So I was very much taught from a young age to be independent and be whoever I want to be. Also be a critical thinker, learn to think for myself and learn to vocalize any thoughts I have and questions I have um, and to be curious. Um, from my personal experience going to Japanese school and having been part of this society, um, I think a lot of times in the Japanese education system we're taught to memorize and not question the teacher and not really think outside of the box. I know that is changing, but that's kind of how it was about 20, 30 years ago when I was growing up. So those are the kinds of values that I had when I was in Japanese society. And yet you can't unlearn once you learn how to think for yourself and be critical. So those are the Western ideals um, that I have brought with me as I continue to grow up and as I continue to live in different places around the world. Great. And Nina, after you came back to Japan as an adult, you started an organization called Hafu Ladies, which is a space um, both online and offline for mixed race Japanese women to uh, mingle and to interact. Um, what motivated you to start this organization and what kind of people have you met there? So Hafu Ladies started almost four years ago now. And um, at first, when I moved here seven years ago, I really felt like there was no community for Hafus in general, men or women. Um, little did I know that there actually was already a community of Hafu people who get together, go out for drinks, really casual like that. Um, and that's an online community and offline community as well. And being part of that was the first real step in self-acceptance and feeling like I had a community where I belonged. However, being part of that community 
as a woman, there were times when I felt a little uncomfortable or not safe in terms of what kinds of questions I could ask, how I can show up as myself and be a woman. Um, and so I felt there was a need to create a community that was just for women. So it really just started out with my own needs and what I thought as a woman and as a half of women, what I wanted to see. Um, and it grew from me to six other women to now 1,200 women worldwide. That's a really big number. So uh, well done <laughs> yeah. with that. That's Wow. And also, I know that you are also the organizer and founder of many other organizations, including the organizations such as Brave and Bold Mastermind that you co-founded. So tell us about these organizations that you have founded or co-founded. What are they for? Yeah. So let me start by going back to Hoffa Ladies. So Hoffa Ladies is really about empowerment and about feeling comfortable in your skin. So we it was really did start off with just a social aspect of getting together and being able to discuss our backgrounds and feel like we fit in with others around us, not feeling judged. But when the pandemic hit, we were no longer able to do social events, which in itself was a silver lining for our community because we were able to start doing online events and thus not only connect with the Hafu women that are in Japan, but actually all over the world. So we were able to do weekly yoga sessions or um, have guest lecturers talk about their different kinds of research around Hafu that they're doing, um, uh, book reading and and this and that, lots of cool events and a cool workshops in order to showcase people in our community. And it really brought the community together a lot more and deeper. Um, yeah, so that's the, the empowerment and the education portion of Hafu Ladies that are really important to us. And with Brave and Bold Mastermind, now that I co-founded with my friend Christy Ishii, who's in Los Angeles, um, but she used to live in Japan. And both of us were on this path starting in 2020, where we became entrepreneurs. Um, and in the midst of the pandemic, it was also really difficult. We you know, didn't have an office to go to in the first place since we were working from home, not just because of the pandemic, but because we we're entrepreneurs and um, had such different schedules from our friends who had nine to five jobs. So we really bonded over that fact and how we were in this space as Asian women entrepreneurs and how that often tends to be kind of outside of the box of what's considered the norm of being um, an Asian woman and the types of the stereotypical types of jobs that a lot of Asian people go into in the first place. So we were really the support network for each other as we were going on this journey of entrepreneurship. And when we were doing that, we thought, you know, we get so much support from each other and it's so great. And yet we have so many things that we don't know about um, everything from, you know, taxes to how do you how do you manage your social media? How do you market yourself? Um, All these things that we have figured out on our own or was still on the path to figuring out, we wanted to share that knowledge um, with other people as well as learn from others as well. 
So we founded the Brave and Bold Mastermind as a program for Asian women entrepreneurs who either have a passion project that they want to launch or already have a business that they wanted to take to the next level. So uh, Christy and I held that space for the women, acting as the facilitators and the coaches to guide the women through different aspects of building your own business and brand. Now, my background is in in, um, public relations and advertisement. So I had that sort of knowledge for social media and branding that I could bring to the table. And Christy has uh, had a background working in recruitment. So she knows the kinds of um, work that goes into different roles that people need to step into. And she also works as a coach. So was able to do the more um, holistic and more mental approach to the whole project. And um, together we also brought in guest speakers, um, other entrepreneurial women in, uh, who are Asian women as well, and created these programs that lasted either 10 weeks long or a few months long, um, a few months longer than 10 weeks um, to yeah, create that space and to hold it for each other and support one another. And not only did we see women literally launch their business from idea to selling products online. Um, And not only that, but we saw the women in the cohort be able to support one another and really bond over their journey and become friends, lifelong friends through that. Um, Are your clients mostly women in Japan or in the U.S.? We've had a mixture, but mostly in Japan. Even if they aren't Japanese, they have some sort of connection to Japan, either living here or have lived here. So that's been our past clientele, mostly, or people who somehow have connections to Japan. When you're kind of preparing these women to launch their businesses in Japan, have you kind of encountered any specific characteristics of the Japanese market that you felt you guys had to adapt to or maybe kind of deal with? Yeah, a lot. The the clients that we've worked with have mostly been people who are launching Western facing. So um, it hasn't been much of an issue yet. However, we both have worked in Japan and understand the basically the the walls that we hit as women entrepreneurs in general in Japan a lot of times whether the stereotype of women being you know domestic housewives um, not being able to have the mental capacity or the courage and the empowerment to know that they can make it so it was a lot of mental work that we did with the clients in order to put them in a space to help them believe and to know that they are capable of anything that they set their mind to, even though Japanese society often would be telling us differently. Can you give us maybe one or two examples of the businesses that your clients have successfully established? Yeah, so one example is we had a woman who wanted to globalize her husband's family business, which is a mulicha or barley tea company. And they've been around for over a hundred years. 
And it's a family-run business of making delicious barley tea. I was just drinking some today. And since she's had a background going to university in the States and speaks English, she wanted to launch their product uh, for more of an English-speaking market, starting with English speakers in Japan. And so the business essentially was already established, but we had to talk with her about how branding can often be different for a Japanese market versus an English speaking market. So we really started with that and helping her tell the story. And um, by the end of it, they had a whole English um, shop, like online shop launched. And she gave a beautiful 10 minute presentation about how the love for their barley tea started with her and her husband falling in love and, um, you know, uh, helping with the, the family business and how it was really barley tea that's made out of love and for the family. And um, it was just a really beautiful story that we were like, this is what sells to an English speaking market. Um, whilst in a Japanese market, it might be more about, you know, what the, the barley is like, where does it come from and all that kind of more technical and scientific work that people are curious about. So. Yeah, we spoke through that. And by the end, they had the, the online shop launched. And um, I need to I need to speak with her to see how that's going now. But it's really great that they were able to offer the, their delicious teas to people um, who don't who, who wouldn't necessarily be able to buy it otherwise if it wasn't in English. It's yeah. very interesting that kind of advertising is done differently depending on the culture. So like totally. you mentioned in Japan, it's more like the technicality or, you know, the aesthetics of the product. Whereas in mm-hmm. maybe for an English audience, it might be the narrative or like yes. how practical or like um, how, how the product will give you profit in the long run or, you know, the narrative of, or the profit. I think, you know, the relationships between culture and advertising is very interesting. All right. So before you became an entrepreneur, I know that you were also a creator of English textbooks and that you have written and um, published several travel stories and articles, as well as English textbooks for English learners. From that perspective, what advice do you have for people who are studying and hoping to improve their English? Great question. My biggest advice is to not be afraid to put yourself out there. Um, when I was re- writing the textbooks, I it's a, it's a quite well-known textbook in Japan, the series that I, I worked on, like the second and third editions. But um, I met quite a few Japanese people who, when I told them what textbooks I was writing they're like oh I used that when I was going into high school or college and they would recite the sentences from the books to me and I would ask them okay you you remember that sentence 10 years you know even now 10 years after you use the book what does that sentence mean and they wouldn't know what it meant and so it goes back to the education where we're taught to so 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 much of the time memorize and not really critically think about what it means so I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's great to use textbooks. It's great to, you know, find so many ways to learn a language and learn English. But if you don't put yourself out there, you're never going to be able to use it. You're never actually going to be able to converse and being able to converse 
with so many people around the world, I think is the most empowering aspect of being able to speak English. And I've encountered this also in my travel writing as well, because for my work as a writer, I have visited over 30 prefectures around Japan and I'm always alone. Most of the time I'm alone. So I have to go into you know, local little mom and pop restaurants for dinner by myself or be able to just ch chat with locals in general to get around. And as a person who can be shy sometimes, it's really scary to ask for directions or help or to just enter a restaurant by myself. But I put myself out there. And by doing that, those are some of the best memories from traveling or the, the locals I've met, the, the stories that they've told me, the the drinks that and the food that we shared through those conversations and if I was to keep to myself if I didn't speak up no matter whether it was in English or Japanese or any other language I wouldn't have had those memories and those interactions so yeah the number one thing that is really important in learning English is to just start speaking. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. Everyone is wrong at first and there's no perfect way to do it. And you're not going to achieve a comfortable level of speaking the language unless you start at the bottom. Great advice. Thank you. So be brave and bold when you are speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, and absolutely. Get, and get out of your comfort zone. That's right. Very true. I agree. And finally, um, can you give us <clears throat> some final closing remarks in Japanese? Oh, all right. Minasan, gambatte kudasai. Ego o hanasno wa sugoi. Koi to mo koto marushi. Yapari, kampiki janai to hanasenai to mo hitomo irutomo ndeskeredo. Hontoni, machigai mo, ano, kuagarazu. あの、どんどんいろんな人と話し、話し続けるとどんどん自分のコンフィデンスも上がっていくと思うので、あの、勇気も出ると思います。Fall seven times, get up eight。七回倒れて、八回上がるみたいな感じのように頑張り続けたら、そのうちいいことがあると思います。はい、ありがとうございます。Alright. And if you would like to get in touch with Nina, please find her on Instagram at Nina M. Cataldo. That's all uh, without dots, all in uh, small letters. Um, Nina M. Cataldo. You can also find Nina on LinkedIn at Nina M. Cataldo. All right. And Nina also has her own podcast. So I will put the link in the description below. I hope you were able to learn new phrases and expressions through listening to our conversation. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Kaya. And as usual, please rate the podcast and write your comments and questions to my email or Instagram account. And see you soon in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.